I want to welcome you here this morning. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, if you're here visiting with us this morning, um, I want to invite you at the end of our service to connect to that little table on the way out. Uh, there'll be somebody there to greet you and uh, just pass you a little bag of information that sort of tries to capture who we are as a church. Um, we um, treasure the time that we have with you this morning. Glad you're here. Um, I want to make a, just a brief announcement. I want to, want to continue in prayer and then climb into our passage this morning. Um, I, this church has a, a history of adoptions, fostering and adoptions that, uh, has, that goes way back. And I want to uh, just catch you up on something that if you have been praying about fostering or adopting and you are um, maybe concerned about the cost involved, I want to set you free on some things. Uh, first of all, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And that if he's calling you to adoption um, or, or to be involved in that type of work, then he'll provide the goods. Um, Crosspoint right now has a fund that is set up for that purpose with $26,000 in it. Uh, Scott was telling me this morning, and that's three adoptions right there. So uh, if it's something that, um, if there's a cost prohibitive sense to it, don't let that be a prohibitive sense. Let that be something that sets you free. And it bums me out too, the notion of that money sitting there with kids that are adoptable and families that can adopt. So, man, let's, we're not a bank. Let's put that money to work. Let's put it to work and put some, some kids in some homes. I'm going to pray. And uh, we're going to pray for a few things this morning. We're going to pray for one of our own, Kathy Lee, who had some surgery this last week and has not, is not doing very well. Uh, I want to pray for another church in our community, Family Fellowship. And I want to pray about the holiday. I know that, the, man, Memorial Day is more than just a, a time to catch a good sale. You know, it's a time where we actually want to be very intentional about remembering families that are dealing with the loss of somebody who died in the service of our country. So let's be intentional about that. Don't, if you know a veteran, don't tell them, thank you for your service today. That's for Veterans Day. Today is the day we remember that those who have um, given their life in the service of our country. So for friends and family. So let's, uh, let's pray toward that end. Lord, first of all, I want to just ask that you would put this money to work that I uh, just shared about, that you would uh, connect it to uh, little people that can be part of a family right now, that um, families that are able to adopt or, or foster, Lord, that they would feel freed up uh, from something that may have limited them. Um, just pray that you would um, empty that account uh, for your glory and for the advancement of the kingdom. Or two, this morning, we want to pray about this, uh, the holiday. I want to pray that we as a church uh, will be attentive to those, mindful of those who are grieving the loss, maybe even some of us who are grieving the loss of a family member or a friend who gave their life in the service of our country. Uh, Spencer McDonald's family is uh, on my mind this week as a, a friend that um, gave his life in the service of our country. And I pray for his family, Lord. I pray that through the loss of these uh, many people, uh, many young men and women that have died in these last uh, last 20 years that I'm attentive to. Lord, I pray that they will be um, somehow through their loss that they will come to know you. And if they already know you, then they will come to enjoy you more, even in their pain. Lord, I'm thankful for young men and women who are willing to give their lives in the service of our country. Uh, Lord, I know what compels them. It's a love for, first of all, for family and a love for friends and a love for a country that is a pretty great place to live. I pray that you'd bless those families that are serving in that way sacrificially. Lord, too, this morning, I want to pray for Kathy Lee, just uh, burdened for her health, Lord, and 
uh, realizing that um, you're the one that is that holds all things together. We just want to entrust her to you, Lord. We want to ask you to bring healing to her body. That this uh, these surgeries that she's had this week that they would um, that they would help her, Lord. We pray that the antibiotics that she's receiving right now would help her recover from those surgeries, Lord. That we would have her back uh, and with us soon, entrusting her to you, Lord. Lastly, Lord, we want to pray for another church in our community. Uh, just thankful for the chance to lift up a, just a great church. Um, family fellowship, just uh, so wonderful to serve alongside them and to see you moving so and working so consistently and so um, faithfully over the years through the ministry of family fellowship. I would pray for uh, Paul and his wife, um, Lynn. Lord, we pray that they are enjoying you as a family, first and foremost, that Paul is blessed as he's studying and preparing to preach, that he's nourished, uh, and that that finds a connection to the kind of husband that he is and the kind of father that he is. Uh, and Lord, that that'll have an overflow into the pulpit and into uh, his pastoral ministry. Um, we pray for family, fellow, uh, family fellowship, Lord. We pray that you will use, uh, even uh, specifically today, that you will use the time that they are spending in worship to equip the saints for the work of service, or to equip the saints uh, as he, Paul, does the work of service at the ministry of the word. Lord, we pray that you would um, uh, just grow this church, uh, that you would give them good problems of growth issues, and thankful for the chance to serve alongside them this morning. Lord, I pray that you will uh, equip us in these next few minutes, that we will see and enjoy a beautiful garden. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I don't have a page number for you this morning. I, I want to say it's 9-something. I'll give you a range. I need to find it in my own Bible. Ephesians chapter 4. I sent out some questions this week in an email. And I hope that you had the chance to maybe consider those questions, to at least maybe read them, even better, to discuss them as a family maybe. I want to begin the morning with those questions unanswered, and I want to come back to those questions at the very end of the morning. And I'm hoping and praying that we'll have some good answers, some biblical answers for these questions. First question is, what comes to mind when you think of living a life of holiness? Maybe to rephrase it, what comes to mind when, we, when you consider what it means to live a life of obedience? As you think of that question, you think of those, really those couple of questions, those phrases of living a life of holiness and living a life of obedience. Do those questions evoke thoughts of denial and suffering? I might be revealing a lot about myself in asking that question. I don't want to make any assumptions this morning. But I want you to consider as you think on those questions, do you make a beeline to thoughts of denial and suffering and maybe even pain? Next question is, how might viewing the holy and obedient walk of faith only as a life of denial and suffering affect your view of your heavenly Father? How might a view of the journey of faith as primarily or only a journey of pain and denial and suffering affect your view of the Father who called you to it? 
And the last question is if you were to view the walk this way as a life of denial and suffering, how might that influence your walk? What might your walk look like? I hope that we'll have some answers by the end of the morning as we come back around to these questions. I want to uh, take you first to a pretty advanced slide that I put together, an overhead that is really complex. I spent a lot of time on this, and um, I actually have my pointer. Casey couldn't believe that I'm actually going to use my pointer this morning, but I actually am going to use my pointer, and it's good for good reason. Uh, I want to show you this seesaw on this image because I want to, I, I hope that it will help you maybe understand how Paul uses a lot of his arguments. Okay, we've already met a couple of arguments in the book of Ephesians that Paul has developed, where Paul in some ways has developed the south end or the west or the left end there of the seesaw and the centerpiece and the right end. I want to kind of help you break that down. Ephesians chapter 2, a very familiar passage for us and maybe my um, most favorite passage in the whole Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul develops the reality that you Gentiles, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're walking according to the, the ways of the earth, according to the prince of the power of the air. You were by nature, along with the Jews, children of wrath. Okay, But God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us with Christ, and he seated us with Christ in heavenly places. Okay, And he did this so that he could show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And he did this in verse 10 of chapter 2 so that we would walk in the good works that were prepared in advance for us. Okay, this seesaw is a nice way to sort of visualize how Paul handles a number of arguments, especially in the book of Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us and he seated us so that he would be famous and glorified in the graceful work of that. Okay? The passage continues there in chapter 2 where he points out to the Gentiles that you were at one time alienated from life with God. Okay, But then he goes on to develop, but in Christ you've been brought near. And the two, the separated two, the Jew and Gentile, are now made one new people, one new humanity. Paul follows this seesaw sort of argument where you can visualize it, hopefully with the seesaw, and see that he does that frequently in the book of Ephesians. And we're in a passage this morning in chapter 4 where he does this very same thing. We're going to leave this image up here just for a few minutes, and I'll let you know when to turn it off. But I want to point out where we are in this passage, beginning in verse 17. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning focusing on verses 20 through 24. But I want to begin in verse 17 so we see the whole seesaw. And so we see the fulcrum, the important role of the fulcrum. And so we see what this north end or the right end means. Okay, so let's begin in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This passage develops what we might call the dying end of the seesaw there, or the dead end, the lifeless end. Paul is calling this church, the Ephesian church, 
of converted Gentiles to walk no more as they walked before Christ in their vain thinking, in their darkened understanding, in their hard-heartedness, and in their sinful and sensual lives. They were alienated from the life that comes from God. This is the dead end of the seesaw right here in verses 17 through 19. Now verses 20 and 21 are the wonderful fulcrum. Let's look at those next couple of verses. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. These couple of verses are the fulcrum and they are Paul's appeal to the church at Ephesus. Don't live any longer as the Gentiles that you formerly were because of this. This fulcrum is the difference between the dead end and the living end. He's calling them to realize and remember and walk in the fact that they have learned Christ. Now, that may be a strange thought for you. I thought I would just give you a couple of images that might help you sort of visualize what it means to learn Christ. Because I want to draw this out and just spend a few moments on this. Acts is the story of the early church. Okay, The early chapters in the book of Acts, you can visualize how this, this church is born through the preaching of the word at Pentecost, and some things that develop in those few chapters after that. I want to just read just a couple of passages to you. Story of the early church in chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I want you to think about how that passage flows. I'll read it again because I want you to pay attention to how it flows. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Oh, yeah, and then there's fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And, oh, by the way, there were tons of miracles. Awe came upon every soul through the teaching of the word and the devotion to the word and the teaching was central and primary in the life of the early church. And, oh, by the way, there's some miracles. Just a couple of chapters later, in chapter 5, listen to this passage. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. This was the fulcrum for the life of the early church, and it is the fulcrum now. And Christ, the teaching about Christ and the teaching of Christ is the instrument that changes the left side of the, that brings you from the left side of the seesaw. To the right, from the dead end to the living end, is preaching and teaching Christ. Now, what's important to realize is that Paul did this very thing in Ephesus. Okay, on his missionary journeys, he went to these various places all over the Roman Empire. Paul actually taught and preached in Ephesus. He was there. He taught Christ. He knows exactly what they were taught. He knows exactly what they heard. And then he phrases it in a way that is profound. I want to read it to you again because I want you to capture what he's saying here. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ. That's the difference between the south end of that seesaw and the north end is the fact that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. In some ways, what he's saying is assuming that you know Christ through the teaching and preaching of the word. That may seem like a, something that just breathes right on past, but I want to point out to you the importance of that reality. See, Christians, at least 
proper Christians believe that Jesus is a risen and living being. Okay? And they believe that this risen and living being, that his presence is mediated by the teaching and preaching about him. Let that hit you just for a minute. He is mediated, his presence is mediated by the teaching and preaching about him. That's the fulcrum in this passage is the teaching about him and the learning Christ. So learning Christ involves not just learning some facts about Jesus, but actually knowing Christ and being shaped by Christ. That is this miraculous reality about the teaching and preaching of Jesus. It's not just fact collecting. It's not just data collecting. It is the means by which we come to know Christ and to be transformed and shaped by Christ. Man, that fulcrum is profound. You can just take the ball and run with that and imagine what that means. Just consider this reality, this topic, and a capital T topic of Jesus, of Christ, as the topic, isn't external and academic, maybe like every other topic and every other class and every other lesson that you've ever learned. This capital T topic is more than external and academic. It is internalized as we learn about him and as we hear about him, and it actually becomes life-altering. It is a supernatural reality. And Paul points this out as the fulcrum and the difference between the dead end and the living end. Learning Christ, hearing about Christ, being taught in him is the difference between one end of the seesaw and the other, the dead end and the living end. Now, I want to move to the ideal, the living end of the seesaw. You can turn that off now. It's a distraction probably by this point. We're going to look at verses 22 through 24 and spend a few moments unpacking these. This is the ideal or the living end of the seesaw. Beginning in verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul develops in these three passages three charges They are Greek infinitives that he uses as imperatives that are charges to the Ephesian church. He's told them, don't walk any longer in your former manner of life. That's not how you learned Christ. There's the fulcrum. Instead, there's three imperatives. And the first of those three is in verse 22. Put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put off the old self would be synonymous with put off the old man. That word there, self, is singular. And it gives the idea of putting off the old humanity. Putting off the old race, if you want to connect it to last week. Putting off the old identity, the old person collectively, but it also has some individual application. Put off the old self yourself. Put off your old and former manner of life as an individual. And collectively as a church, we are to put off the old identity. It is admittedly, and we have to recognize, a former manner of life. What you think about by this point, we don't know, you know exactly the year precisely that Paul preached in Ephesus, but 
we would suspect that by the time that he preaches in Ephesus, there were people that were converted to trust Christ as their Savior and Lord from being a pagan Gentile that maybe had lived a pagan life for decades. Their former manner of life would be a significant expense and significant contribution to a certain way of life. But Paul points out to them, becoming a follower of Christ means a radical departure with that old life, whether it was for a year or for 40 years. It means a departure with the former manner of life. I thought the disciples would be a nice image for us to sort of take in what this departure would look like. These might be some familiar passages to you, and I'll just read Um, I'll read them to you. I'll give you the reference if you'd like to turn there. Or you can just listen. But I want you to take in the imagery of what unfolds here in these passages. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets. And followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Man, it is a decisive departure with the old life. Listen to the passages, sort of parallel passages in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 verse 11 adds to that same story. And when they brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Just across the page there, there's a story of, of tax collectors being called. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. If you've been paying attention to repeated words in those couple of passages, you've hopefully noticed that they were called to depart from those things immediately, decisively. And the passage of both passages use reference to everything being left, boats, booths, even a father, Zebedee, was left alone in the boat. Beautiful images of what it means to follow Christ and what that old life should look like. Listen to this passage in Luke chapter 9. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, take this in for a moment. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you... Go and proclaim the kingdom of God, life. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And these are beautiful visuals of what it means to follow Christ and where that former life fits in. It fits in the rearview mirror. And it fits in so decisively that the rearview mirror gets ripped out and thrown out of the window. Don't even look back. Man, you're not even fit for the kingdom if you're looking back and dabbling in that old life. These are beautiful visuals that should put in perspective the cost of discipleship when you put your hand to the plow 
and don't look back. It is a strong and a clear break with the former manner of life. It's supposed to be. The language there of putting off, some people believe that that language, some of the scholars that study that language believe that that putting off and putting on was connected to early baptismal rites. See, when someone was baptized back in the ancient story, back in the early church, there are some records that show that they actually showed up in their old clothes and that they stripped down to their undies, I guess, their ancient garments, their ancient underoos. And then after their baptism, they put them in some new clothing. Man, what a beautiful, beautiful imagery of leave that old, nasty stuff behind you. This change of clothing was a way to signify a change in identity. Man, there's a charge to put off the old man, and it wasn't a charge here to be rebaptized if we wanted to connect it to that baptism, baptism imagery, but rather a charge to walk in that new identity, to walk in those new clothes that have been given to you, to cease being who you reckon to no longer be. That's what the saints have been called to, to cease being who you were no longer reckoned to be, to give up on the old person that you no longer are. Now, in case anybody needed a good reason, if that wasn't reason enough, the fact that our Lord called us to this, then maybe this would be a good reason. He explains, he goes on to explain what's associated with that old self and that old humanity, that former manner of life, that it's corrupt and it's fueled by deceitful desires. Man, if you needed a reason, how about that for a reason? The manner of life that he's talking about was corrupted through desires that proved deceitful. Now, the corruption there gives the sad sense the old man is decaying and lost. So to continue living the life of corruption and decay in that old life would be like truly throwing good money after bad. Anybody ever do that before? You ever know somebody that's going to throw some good money after bad? Like that old neighbor that has that old rusty Buick and wants to put a nice paint job on it? The frame's rusted in two, but man, he wants that thing to look good. Man, you're throwing good money after bad. It would be like taking a, a horse that's out in the, the pasture that has its buck tooth and sway back nasty old tired horse that's on his way to being dog food and taking that horse and saying man I want to take you to the tracks and I'm going to pour a lot of money in you I'm going to invest a lot of time into you and I'm going to train you I'm going to give you the best of the best and I'm, and I'm even going to bet on you that's what it's like to pour into the corrupt deceitful old man and old identity it is truly a sinking ship it is throwing good money after bad the former manner of life, too, I appreciate this imagery of deceitfulness. The former manner of life is populated with mirages. Populated with mirages. These things that look really good, but once you get there, you realize, man, this thing is not really delivering. There's nothing here. I thought I would truly be happy if I pursued this thing in the old manner of life and this sinful pursuit. And turns out it's deceitful. So the living are to put off the old man. The second imperative from this passage is in verse 23. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. 
This is, could be rephrased to be renewed in the essence of your minds. This is not a reference to the Holy Spirit in this passage. It is a reference to the essence of your minds. Now, I want to point something out to you. Uh, let me just be real, real open with you about something first. Over 14 years, probably my biggest struggle in preaching has been working through passages like this and feeling like, man, I really need to have a tap dance or something. I really need to have some sort of light show or something that's really going to keep people interested. Because the, the, the teaching and preaching of the word is not quite ex- exciting enough for people to stay engaged. Because I can see people sleep or I can see people nod off from week to week. You know, it's funny to me, I, I, over the years of preaching to a congregation, you know, people driving down the road, you think you're invisible when you're picking your nose. People can totally see you. I can see you sleeping on Sunday morning too when you're just totally out of it and you're totally disengaged. This happens right here. I get it. And those things affect me because I have eyeballs. So I can see those things. But a passage like this is really encouraging to me because it reminds me that it's by the renewing of your minds that you enjoy that fulcrum. And in that, you're moved from the dead end to the living end. So then I can exhale and say, I don't need a light show. I don't need dancing girls. I don't need a smoke machine. I just need to unpack the word. You see how important teaching and preaching is in this passage? In verse 23, that their minds would be renewed. In verse 20, that they are learning Christ. In verse 21, that they are hearing and being taught Christ. Man, it's a relieving for me, helpful for me to realize that, we, that you experience Christ via the word. He is mediated through the teaching and preaching of the word. And learning him results in transformation every time. Every time, not necessarily every person, but I trust that every sermon is not going to return void, even the sleepers. I trust that God's going to use that, and he's going to transform some folks as folks are, are enjoying Christ through the renewal of their mind and the teaching and preaching of the word. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. Man, renewal is an ongoing process whereby we grow into Christ. And we do that via learning Christ. We do that via hearing Christ. Christ. We do that being, uh, via being taught Christ. I uh, uh, spent some time in a car going to see a bike race with Jerry the other day and was sharing with Jerry things that are, uh, he was just asking me questions about what's hard about preaching or being a pastor. And we were talking about various things. One of the things I didn't share with Jerry is uh, probably one of, I would say one of the most difficult things about being a preacher for me is that you're expecting me to be prepared every single week. And I joked around about this a couple weeks ago. I think you'd drum me out if I wasn't. You'd march me out of here, go home. We, we expected you to stand and deliver. Uh, I'm thankful that you expect that of me. But I, that, that onus isn't necessarily always on the listening. And there are certain times a year, especially where people are very distracted. And the end of the school year seems to be one of those times. There's so much going on. I totally get it. But we can be very, very distracted this, this time of year. And the it, it causes a sort of grief in me. And it's not a grief that feeling like I personally wasted my time. <laughs> like I spent a lot of time and you're not, you know, you're not paying attention to what I have to say. 
the real grief for me, if I could be really honest and vulnerable with you, the real grief for me is not so much about me. The grief for me is that when you're distracted and you're not hearing Christ and you're not being taught in Christ and you're not learning Christ, is you're missing out on something that is pretty awesome. You're missing out on him, that he's that good and he's that present in the teaching and preaching of the word. That's what makes it hard for me, those seasons where folks are distracted or where folks are sleepy. I joked just a few weeks ago about the... I didn't even joke. I told you about my marine instructor that would throw the, uh, the uh, eraser covered with chalk at the folks that were sleeping because there was so much at stake. Man, I feel that burden at times, but not because it's a punitive thing because I want to tune you up, but because I want you to wake up and experience Jesus through the teaching and preaching of the word. I want you to be renewed in your minds so that transformation takes place, yes, but so that you will know Christ. Because he's that good and he's that present and that available in the teaching and preaching of the word. He's so enjoyable and he's so present. I enjoy it when folks taste and see that the Lord is good. I enjoy it when folks are enjoying Christ and are transformed in the process. The third imperative comes from verse 24. Those first two imperatives, I hope you were noticing, it's put off the old man in verse 22, be renewed in the essence of your mind in verse 23, and here's the third one in verse 24. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This passage sort of gives the concept as we talked about putting off the old man, of putting on the new humanity, putting on the new identity, that new race that's recreated in the likeness of God. One of the things that I enjoy about this thought of putting on the new man and this passage in particular is realizing that we are a recreated people and that you even individually are recreated people, that God did a recreative work in us. The passage that I mentioned just a few moments ago in Ephesians chapter 2, you were created for good works in Christ Jesus. That word there in context means recreated. That's where concepts like being born again come from. You're a recreated people. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are a new creation, a recreated people. And that means as recreated folk, we're placed back in that garden relationship with our Creator placed back in that garden relationship with a good father. We've been restored to the garden, a garden full of blessings with branches that are straining at the weight of the fruit of happiness. And in contrast to what drove the old man, you remember that? Deceit. What drives the new man is truth. Putting on the new man is what happens at the living end of the seesaw. Now, I have a couple of thoughts for you, just brief thoughts that I hope will sort of bring this home for you, but also give you a place to park. I want to end in a moment with those questions that I asked, but I want to consider these two things first. Putting off the old man hurts. Putting off the old man hurts. I mean, it does. Pain is very much a part of the Christian journey because it involves denial and suffering. 
It does. It was Christ, after all, that said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Ouch, right? I mean, let's be really honest. Let's deal and reckon with the fact that putting off the old man hurts. But let's figure out where the pain is coming from. Let's figure out who's to blame for the pain. The pain and suffering that comes in the life of holiness and the life of obedience comes from the departures from our well-worn paths to the wrong tree. I want you to hear that. The pain and suffering that we feel in the journey of faith that he's calling us to right here, to take up our cross, comes from the departures from our well-worn paths to the wrong tree. It is very much a painful and agonizing process to be pulled away from those paths. I was thinking this morning that in some ways it's strange. It's almost like Stockholm Syndrome. You know Stockholm Syndrome where the captors and these little fake prison became, became actually Stockholm, I'm not sure there was a, that was a fake prison, but the Stockholm Syndrome has been proven where these captors fell in love with their, or these captives fell in love with their captors. And maybe the pain for us comes in that we've fallen in love with the path that we've taken to the wrong tree. We've fallen in love with the whole experience. It's baffling how we could possibly do that, but it must be what we do. Putting off the old man hurts. It does for sure. But our father, though, you need to understand, is not a pain-inflicting father. He's not inflicting pain on us. He is a good father who guides us away from those well-worn paths. God is not inflicting pain on us. He is not a punitive God. And thinking about this holiness series and this, these series of sermons that I'm preaching, I thought about these, these things that come to my mind oftentimes when I think about a life of holiness or a life of obedience that I might make a beeline to a father who's more punitive than anything else. That's just waiting for me to step out of line so he can smash me or pop me. Anybody else think that way? I want you to think for a moment about what kind of father you'd be sitting next to or what kind of father you'd be or what kind of father that you might be thinking of right now who may not be with you if the only interaction that he ever had with you was punitive. What kind of father would that be? That'd be a pretty terrible father. Man, hopefully we get so much more from our fathers. We get fellowship. We get enjoyment. We get relationship. And it's not the only time that you hear from him is a punitive thing. But man, if you only see this journey of faith as the pain and suffering of putting off the old man, you're likely going to associate that with a father and you're going to begin to identify him as a punitive father. That's not a very good father. Our father is not inflicting pain on us. He is lovingly guiding us away from paths that we've made on our own. Denial of suffering and suffering isn't the sum and total of the Christian work and the Christian walk. And our Father is not inflicting it on us. That's more stoicism than it is Christianity. And here's the second point. The first was putting off the old man hurts. But here's the good news. Putting on the new man doesn't. Putting on the new man doesn't. I love that our Lord, anytime he calls us away from something, he calls us to something. 
Anytime he calls us to put off something, he calls us to put on something. And it's always so much better than whatever he's called us away from. Can I just equip you just with a couple of fresh passages? Because I want to guide you into an image. Maybe a new place to park the notion of obedience and holiness. Listen to these passages. They'll be familiar to you in Genesis. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Is there anything in that that just doesn't sound like ample blessing? In the next chapter, it says the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man. Here's what he said in. This is the commandment. He says, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. Look around you, Adam. Look around you at every tree imaginable in this unbelievable garden. It's all yours. That's commandment. And then he says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him or suitable for him. I will make him a helper that corresponds to him. I wanted to equip you with those passages because I want to take you to this thought that might be a new parking place for you. I want you to realize that God wasn't holding out on Adam and Eve with the whole forbidden tree thing. He wasn't holding out on Adam and Eve that that's the source of the really good stuff. See, that's a lie from Satan. That's the lie of Satan in the very next chapter. Satan says, he said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. That's what Satan did to Eve. He fooled her and convinced her to believe God was holding out on her. That it's that tree is the, really the good stuff. That all that stuff behind her and around her and in every cardinal direction, these trees where the branches are bending at the weight of blessing. God's holding out on you. The good stuff is really in that tree right there. Man, I want you to know that God was not holding out on Eve. Satan convinced Eve that he was and he wanted them, and listen to this, he wants you to believe the sinful life is really the good life. All those things that he's forbidden, that former manner of life, that old life, that's really the fun life. That's where the good stuff is. That's what Satan wants you to believe, just like he wanted Adam and Eve 
to believe that. He wants you to believe it's in the forbidden stuff there that you'll find real freedom and real happiness, right? But it's a mirage, isn't it? Anybody ever tried it? Ask Solomon what he thought of that. Meaningless, vanity, vapor. Turns out it's a mirage. He convinced them that God was holding out on them and he wants you to believe the same because when you do, you'll come right back to that tree. You'll come back to that tree over and over and over again wearing that path, wearing ruts to the forbidden stuff, thinking maybe this time it'll make me happy. Maybe this time it'll come through. But you've got to remember that Satan is the father of lies. He's deceitful and his promises don't deliver. Ever. Ever. Man, the important thing that I want you to get this morning is that we've been restored to the good life. We've been restored to the garden life through the fulcrum. We've been restored to the living end, the holy and obedient life, isn't one that's characterized as one of pain and denial. It might involve a little bit of it, but that's not what the life is like. Think about the garden context. Think about Adam and Eve, the holy and obedient life. The garden life isn't characterized as one that involves pain and denial any more than Adam and Eve's lives were characterized by pain and denial and suffering before the fall. Think about it. I was just thinking about three ways that their life would be pretty awesome before the fall. First of all, it's a man and a woman, and they're naked. (laughs) I mean, really, let's just start with the basics. That's pretty awesome. Second of all, they have a garden full of blessings. They have one tree they're not to eat from. But the part of the commandment is eat from all the others. Eat from everyone, every fruit imaginable. And the third part of the job is to tend the garden. Can you imagine what work in a pre-fall environment is like? Jeff, can you imagine if you were to fix a car and it stayed fixed? He'd be out of business. Can you imagine, but if you were to build something and it never needed fixing or rebuilding? Can you imagine what work in an environment that didn't involve decay and um, what is the second law of thermodynamics where things go from a higher state of order to the lower? Man, that thing wears me out. Second law of thermodynamics wears me out. I straighten on my desk and like the next day, look like a bomb went off. Can you imagine working in an environment that didn't involve one step forward, two steps back? Gary, you fix a roof, it stays fixed. Y'all all would be out of business. But it'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? Think about that. That, doesn't, that journey does not involve pain and, and suffering primarily. Man, the life of obedience and the life of holiness that he calls us to involves naked vulnerability. This blessedness in our vulnerability that we have to one another. This access that we give to one another. Search me, brother. You've got my back and I've got yours. This blessed walk that we've been called to has 
gardens full of blessings for us. Branches that are heavy laden with blessings for the taking. And it involves a work that, unlike every other work that I do, is in fact eternal. The work that he calls us to, investing and pouring faith into our children, pouring faith into you, pouring faith into one another, life group sharing Shepherds pouring faith into your people. Deacons pouring faith into your people. That's eternal work. That's garden work. It doesn't decay. Man, what an amazing thing we've been called to. This journey of obedience and holiness is not primarily about denial and pain and suffering. It is an overwhelming blessing. Man, this is supposed to be most of the journey of faith. Enjoying and knowing God through Christ's work, through the fulcrum. Putting on the new man doesn't hurt. It's awesome. And it's better. And it's better, way better, than painting that old Buick and feeding that old dying horse. What comes to mind when you think of living a life of holiness or living a life of obedience? I hope what comes to mind maybe after this morning, fruit-laden branches. A garden full of blessing. Do these phrases immediately evoke thoughts of denial and suffering? I hope maybe a little bit, but not much. And when we talk of living a life of obedience and holiness, living in the new man, in the new humanity, in the new identity, I hope you have some other thoughts, too, of blessings galore. How might viewing the holy and obedient walk of faith only as a life of denial and suffering affect your view of your heavenly Father? You're going to view your Father as a cosmic killjoy that's ready to just smash you when you step out of line. That's not our That's not our father. This isn't a father you would enjoy spending time with. This isn't a father that you would seek out. And it's certainly not a father that you would want your friends to meet. Man, that's not our father. We have a good father that's given us a garden full of blessings. How about the walk itself? That last question that I asked, what do you think it would look like if you viewed the walk of faith as only about denial and suffering? Your walk will probably look lifeless. It'll look empty. It'll look a lot like a kid whose dad only deals with him punitively. Beat down and shell-shocked. Man, I just don't want to step out of line. I want to obey just so I don't get smashed. Man, that's sad. That's sad, and it's sure not contagious. It's sure not attracted to an unbelieving world. It sounds like a life of a stoic, not a Christian. Man, I hope that you, just for a few minutes this morning, maybe have a new parking place for a view of a good father who has created a wide space for us to enjoy him. He calls us to a life of obedience. He calls us to a life of holiness. And in him we find real communion there. In him we find the good life. In him and with him we find that's the cream. He wasn't holding out on us in the other stuff. 
who's giving us his best. Man, I encourage you, put on the new man. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. Let's pray. God, I pray as a result of the time in, our, in your word this morning that you have given us a view of a, an amazing father. I pray, Lord, that we've had a view of an amazing father, first of all, that gave us a fulcrum, that gives us a way to move from the dead end to the living end by faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that just in that that we can enjoy you. Lord, I pray also that we will enjoy your nature this morning and considering that you don't call us simply to a life of pain and denial, but you call us to gardens full of blessings. Joy is abundant. Lord, I pray you'll use this sermon this morning for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Christ is the difference between the dying end and the living end, and we enjoy him every Sunday in the supper. He is the difference between a dead ethic and a living ethic. Learning Christ is how we put off the old man and put on the new. We never outgrow him. We never get to the point where we don't want to enjoy and spend time considering his work. We want to do this every single week. I thought a fitting passage this morning as we consider um, the supper would be the story of Lazarus. You know, some of the background that Jesus loved Lazarus and his family, Mary and Martha were his sisters. Jesus heard about Lazarus being sick. He heard that he was um, near death. And he stuck around, in fact, and he waited for him to die. Doesn't sound very loving, but what unfolds as the story progresses, you find is wonderfully loving. He waited for him to die, and Mary and Martha were pretty upset about that. In fact, Martha heard that Jesus was coming. She went and met him, and Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And here's what he said to her. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now here's how the story progressed. Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. The King James says, surely he stinketh. Man, think about the decaying corruption of the old man that we considered this morning. The stench of the old decaying man. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Get the stench off of him. Get the old stuff off of him. The very next scene that we see with Lazarus 
is one where they're dining together. The next chapter starts this way. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Can you imagine for a moment how much of a faux pas it would have been if Lazarus would have been still wearing his grave cloths at that dinner? Like, come on, Lazarus, I can hardly eat. Can you go change? Man, let that imagery hit you this morning as we dine with Christ. I just can't help but imagine that Lazarus was wearing some new duds that, that day as he's dining with Christ. After the funeral, after the burial, after the resurrection, after parting with those linen cloths, I just can't imagine that he didn't go get some new duds. And here he is, dining with Christ, resting in Christ. Let's distribute the elements and rest in Christ together in our new clothes.